The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you would open your Bibles there, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this is our familiar scripture that we've read over and over and over again. Uh, here we find the command of Christ. We, we gather for the supper because Christ has commanded it, as he has so many other duties that we have in the New Testament. And so we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll begin reading here at verse number 23, where the Apostle Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body." There's one author who said that the Lord's Supper is the heirloom of the church. This is a celebration and observance that we pass down from generation to generation. And the supper that we take tonight is the same as our forefathers have taken it in every generation. Uh, throughout history, the supper has been celebrated. And that's especially appropriate for us to remember uh, at this time, because we have been studying on Sunday nights the history of the church, and you'll notice that I have spoken many times about uh, how churches down through history have treated the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Now, Roman Catholicism has grossly perverted it, and true churches had to teach on it because of that corruption of it, and that's why you'll find arguments about the supper, how it should be observed, who is to observe it in the writings of our Baptist forefathers. Now, the meaning of the supper and the presence of Christ in the supper has been very hotly debated throughout history. Uh, is Christ literally in these elements that we take tonight, or is there a spiritual presence of Christ in them? Uh, is he symbolically present, or is he physically present in the elements of the supper? Well, Luther and Calvin had a disagreement about that. Calvin said that the supper represents Christ in his humanity, and that his humanity was just like ours, that the deity of Christ did not bleed over into his humanity, but the deity and the humanity were completely separate so that it would be impossible for Christ to be physically present in the elements of the supper. In other words, Christ is not in this bread that we'll take as his flesh. He's not in the cup as, he, as his blood is actually in that cup. It's not his literal blood. And in his humanity, Christ was like us and that he couldn't be in one, more than one place at one time. 
And so Calvin reasoned it would be impossible for Christ to be literally present in the supper because human flesh is not able to be in more than one place at one time. Well, Luther argued against that, and he said that Christ communicated divine properties to his humanity, and that allows him to be actually present in the supper. Well, that is what Roman Catholics believe, only the Roman Catholics took that to the extreme, and they said that the blood... Well, first of all, the bread, that's transformed into the literal flesh of Christ. And then the cup, the wine that was in the cup, was literally trans, uh, translated, transformed into the blood of Christ. And this happens when the, when the, priest, um, when the priest consecrates these two elements. And that's what is called the doctrine of transubstantiation. Well, Luther was wrong about it, but he didn't go as wrong as, uh, as the way the Roman Catholics did, but rather he modified the doctrine into what he called consubstantiation. And that means that the blood and body of Christ coexist in the elements of the supper. And they aren't transubstantiated as the Roman Catholics teach, but rather Christ is literally present in the supper, but not as his literal flesh and his literal body. Well, we, of course, agree with Calvin on this, although Calvin did not establish the doctrine. Uh, Baptists had been teaching this particular interpretation of the Scripture many, many centuries, all the way back since the time of Christ and the apostles, because that's what the New Testament teaches. And the New Testament shows us that the supper is actually a memorial And so Baptists were holding on to this truth, although Calvin taught the same thing. We were teaching this long, long before Calvin was ever heard of. Now that just gives you a little bit of a historical note on how the supper has been viewed. Uh, Those are obviously opposing ideas of how that the supper relates to us, whether it's a picture of the body and blood of Christ in a spiritual sense or whether it's actually a real thing. Now, what I'd like to do this evening, though, is to give you a a few thoughts about the supper. And I have actually several points that I want to give you, and each of these points deserve a lot more time than I'm able to give to them. Every one of them is a sermon or more than one sermon uh, by themselves. And so I can't do much more this evening and just barely mention these. And so what you're free to do is to take these things for yourself and study them out, and you can develop these points on your own. And I might add that that is a biblical approach to this because you should be able to feed yourselves at some point so that I don't have to drop everything into your mouths. And uh, we've been talking about this very thing on Wednesday evenings in our fundamentals class about how to study the Bible. So what I'm giving you tonight, you've got an outline. And you can go home and you can take your Bible out and you can study it and you can fill in uh, uh, all the different points here and uh, you can really have a study on your own about what these different things mean in the, in the supper. So I want to take a look at some pictures in the Lord's Supper. What are some of the ideas and some of the doctrines, some of the things that are communicated to us in this supper? Well, at the end of verse number 23 and verse number 24, we find this, and that is, first of all, the incarnation of Christ, that the Lord's Supper teaches us about the incarnation, that Christ had a literal body. Now, the Scripture says, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And then in verse number 24, Christ said, this is my body. And there he's saying that the bread is his body. 
Well, the Bible says that God is a spirit, and so before Christ came into the world, he was a spirit. He had no limitations as to time and space like a human body does. He was a spirit. Now, there has been a doctrine that's been floating around for many, many years that said that the body of Christ is perpetual, or that, in other words, in eternity past, before Christ ever came into the world, that he had a body. But the scriptures don't support that. There was a point in time when Christ, who was a spirit, took on human flesh. In Hebrews 10, verse 5, the scripture says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. The apostle John said in John 1, 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so when he came into the world, there was a body that was prepared for him. Now, since spirits are invisible, the invisible Christ needed a body to be seen. But more than to be seen, he needed a body in order to have the same nature as man. So Hebrews says that he didn't take on him the nature of angels. He didn't take on him some other form. He took on him the form of a man. The Bible says he must be made like a man. Now the reason for that is expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, among many other scriptures that we have on this. But Paul wrote this, he says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh... God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And so he came in the body of a man to live as a man and to fulfill the law of God. Now that's something that in our sinful flesh human flesh, we could never do. And so what Christ came into the world to do was to keep the law perfectly. He came into the world, he took on the nature of flesh, but what he did not do was take on the sinful nature of flesh. So he was born without a sinful nature. And what you might want to do also is to take some time to study in the book of Ruth and reflect on Christ as he's represented by Boaz, who was the kinsman redeemer. So the Bible also teaches that Christ had to become our brother. He had to be made like us in order to perform for us the duties of Redeemer. And so Jesus said, take this bread, it is my body. He had a real body. Now he was fully man, as the Apostle John vigorously asserted in the epistle of 1 John in the first chapter. He said that we saw him, he said we touched him, we heard him, we know that he was truly a man. Now, in the Gospel of John, he argues that this man was actually God. And in 1 John, he argues that God was actually or became a man. Now, in the body, what Christ was able to do is to experience all things that we go through. He was able to experience every heartache, every trial, uh, every good time that humans can have, every bad time that they can have. Christ went through those. And we're blessed for many, many reasons concerning the incarnation, but this has to be truly one of the greatest blessings that we receive, that Christ has sympathy for the human condition. And so there's no one who can say, well, I've been through so much that God really doesn't understand me. God doesn't know what I've had to go through. He doesn't understand the failings of human flesh. He just doesn't know. 
But the Bible teaches that he absolutely does know. He's been through everything that we have experienced. He experienced it all. Now, next in verse number 24, we have a picture of the devotion of Christ. It says, when he had given thanks. Well, what was it he gave thanks for? Well, it says he took the bread and he gave thanks. He already said that the bread was his body, so he was giving thanks for that first picture. Now, of course, he thanked God for physical nourishment that uh, the body would receive from the bread, but the Lord's Supper is much more profound than physical nourishment because when he said this, he, he'd already stated what the bread was all about. He said the bread it is his body. So what is he giving thanks for? Well, you have to really consider how profound that it is because he gave thanks for the body that was about to be beaten and nailed to the cross. And you say, well, how could he possibly give thanks for that? I mean, the body uh, did certainly afford him the opportunity to live as a man, but more than that, it afforded him the opportunity to die as a man. And so it, it assured his death. And so when he gave the supper, he knew that in a few hours, the body that he was in, the body that God had given him, was going to be beaten beyond recognition. And so in just a short amount of time, a a crown of long thorns would be pressed into his brow, which was literal flesh. And rough nails would be driven into literal hands and into literal feet. Christ would experience all of that suffering in real human flesh. And so what he did here was to thank his father for this human flesh. And you have to think again just how profound that is that he was so willing to have this privilege of dying for guilty sinners such as you and me. And so if he had to die at all, then certainly you would think that God would subject him to a painless death death or a merciful death. That would be preferred. But this wasn't painless This was a prolonged death. It was an agonizing death. And here we find Christ thanking God for the body that had been given him so he could endure that kind of a death. Now, I think it's also quite remarkable that he was so devoted to his heavenly father and the work that was ordained for him to do that he gave himself completely to do the father's will. And remember, he prayed this. He said, your will be done. This is what Christ wanted, that God's will would be done. And he would never pray for anything less because he'd always been one with the Father. There was always agreement between them and there would always be agreement. And the original agreement between the Father and the Son that goes all the way back to the council halls of eternity is that Christ would give his life a ransom for sin, that he would be the just dying for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now, that is a picture of uncommon devotion. And I think that that speaks volumes for how we should devote ourselves to him. I mean, is it asking too much that we would serve him? You know, I I thank God that the supper is about him and not about us because we're strangers to that kind of devotion. We fall far short of the devotion that Christ had in doing the Father's will. Now, thirdly then, the supper speaks of the passion of Christ. It speaks of his passion, and the passion is actually that suffering that he would endure. And how does the supper picture this? Well, it has kind of a, kind of a different picture, kind of a strange picture, you might think, because it says, on that night he took the bread and he broke it. 
And, and we need to consider that very carefully. He broke it. He didn't hand it to one of the disciples and say, you break the bread for me. It says he broke it. He didn't hand it to Judas. Judas had already gone out to do his dastardly deed, and so he didn't hand it to Judas. And do you know what that shows us? This is a picture of how Christ had power over his own body. Judas did not take the life of Christ by betraying him to his enemies. The Jews didn't have any power over him. Now, they had tried to take him on many occasions, but every time that they tried, they were unsuccessful. And it was not until Christ decided that it was time for him to die that he allowed himself to be taken. This is what he says in John 10, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And then likewise, the Romans had no power over him. Listen to the exchange between Jesus and Pilate in John 19. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And so the passion of Christ was a voluntary act, and he wasn't reluctant to do this. I mean, knowing what was going to happen to him, he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, and he was not going to avoid the death of the cross. When he decided to go, his purpose was to get to the cross. So there was no thought in his mind that he would try to escape it, I mean, his purpose was to die, and he was going to go through this passion. And so when the time was right, Jesus actually orchestrated everything that led up to his death. Now, Christ set himself up for his suffering, and there's only one reason for that. It's love. It's the love that God had for us, the love that the Son has for us. And what Christ is teaching us is to be selfless in our love as he was selfless. I mean, when he tells us that here, his own example is the ultimate example. And so what he did was to endure immense personal suffering and anguish in order to save our souls from those very same sufferings. And so the cross then was the place where God's wrath was poured out on him so that it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. So in the supper, we see a picture of Christ's passion of that suffering, and the suffering the Bible describes is for the reason that God loved the world. Well, every word in this text has some very special significance, and so we see another great picture in the breaking the bed of the bread. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. And there we see a picture of substitution. The substitution of Christ. His body was broken for you. Well, how was it broken for you? Well, it was broken so that you would not have to be broken. He suffered so that you would not have to suffer. Now, as I just mentioned, he did that so you wouldn't have to suffer the eternal fires of hell. Christ took our suffering by standing at... And he became a substitute for us by standing at God's judgment seat where we should stand. The cross is the place where God's judgment was poured out on Christ so that it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. 
Isaiah says, Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, do you think of that? Do you you remember that as you partake of the bread and you drink of the cup? Now, I think we come to the supper far too often without really hearing the words that are spoken here. This is my body which was broken for you. And we think very little about what that means. I mean, if you can sin without recoiling in remorse for how horrible that sin is and what Christ did. You're really not thinking about what he did for you. Now, obviously, looking at substitution, I I said that there are many things to be said about each of these points. And when you consider substitution and you think of the atonement of Christ, that is one of the major doctrines that we find in the Word of God. There's so much that can be said. Uh, You look into the Old Testament and there are millions of sacrifices made over thousands of years. And every one of those sacrifices is a picture of that substitution that was made by Christ on the cross. And then there are many other things. Uh, When that ram was caught in the thicket and Abraham took the ram, the ram became a substitute in the place of Isaac, who Abraham was ready to kill on the altar. And then the scapegoat that we find in the tabernacle worship was a sign of God taking our sins away, but there was also another goat that was involved in that, and that was a goat that was pictured the innocent one, that the other goat was taken and his life was taken from him, and that showed the innocent dying for the guilty. There are other pictures, like the rock that was smitten in the wilderness that gave forth life-giving water, and that was a picture of of the Lord Jesus Christ, a very clear picture because 1 Corinthians tells us that rock was Christ. A very clear picture that Christ would be smitten for us and from him would be the thing that gives us life. One of my favorite stories is in the book of Genesis about Joseph. And remember when Joseph's brothers came to see him and uh, Joseph had not yet revealed himself to his brothers. And Joseph was speaking to his 12 brothers and told them that they had to go back to, go back to Canaan and retrieve their younger brother, Benjamin, and bring him back. Now, they didn't want to do that, but they knew it was the only way they were going to get through this whole thing. So they went back to Canaan, and there they talked with Jacob, and Jacob was also unwilling to give up Benjamin, but finally he relented and... Jacob, or rather Judah, said to Jacob, essentially this, I'll give my life for his. You take my life, you take my son's life. And that was a picture of substitution. Now Jesus says then, my body is broken for you. In another place, in John, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. So it's in the place of. And that is actually what we tell every lost sinner in a gospel presentation. We tell them that Christ died for sinners. He died in the place of sinners. And if you believe that, then Christ's sacrifice was for you. Now we go on and we see, fifthly, the invitation of Christ. He says, take, eat. And there he invites you to be a partaker of him. 
Now, I want to caution you on this because this is not an invitation to salvation. We don't invite lost people to come to the supper. This is an ordinance of the church. It is for the members of the Lord's church. It's a remembrance of what Christ did for us. For those of us who are believers, those of us who have been washed in the blood of Christ and been redeemed by him. Now, what we are in the Berean Baptist Church are closed communionists or restricted communionists because we believe that that's what the New Testament teaches us to be. And so this invitation is not an invitation to lost sinners. Now, there's another invitation in the Bible for that. This is not for an invitation for lost sinners. Now, in this one, what Jesus does is he invites believers, again, those who have been redeemed by Christ, to partake of all of the benefits that have been procured for us by his death. And so he tells you to come and feast on him, and he wants you to come and grow in him. And so in that way, this is an invitation for sanctification. See, Christ has not only purchased a life for us in heaven, but he's also purchased for us an enriching life here on earth. Now notice I didn't say a rich life. I said an enriching life. Those are two very distinct things. He purchased for us an enriching life on this earth. So, you know, it's not a bad thing for you to think about heaven. All Christians ought to be thinking about heaven. That's a great hope that we have. But we ought not to think that Christ has not also purchased for us a real life on this earth that can be lived in the Holy Spirit and lived in a way that we can be pleasing to God and in a way that is actually pleasing to us. That it's a great life that he's purchased for us here. So Christ did something for us that we have to be so thankful for. He purchased us peace in this life. And this is why a Christian can face every day of his life without trouble, without fear, with, without thinking that everything has gone horribly wrong and there's nobody in control. No, he, he has purchased for us power in this life, a sovereign life, uh, a sovereign God rather orders the life that we live. So he's given us the Holy Spirit, to come and dwell in us as a comforter and a guide. And again, that's why Christians face the worst of times with assurance. We always have hope. There is no one who knows the Lord that is hopeless. There is always hope. So when you take the bread, there's a symbol that you can actually feast on the true bread that came down from heaven, that Jesus is the manna of God. And if you're not partaking of him every day in your spiritual life, you're missing the greatest joys and blessings that, that you can have. He invites us to come and feast on him. Now, here's where I, I have to get a little bit difficult with you because I know that there are some of you that look for joy in other places. Somehow you think that the world is able to bring you peace and the world is able to fulfill you. Some think that you would be more content if you find fun in other places. And so you might go to some place like the casino. And I can tell you that that is no place for a member of Berean Baptist Church. We don't need vice to fill our lives. What does the scripture say? We're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you can go into that kind of environment and feel you're, feel you're doing what God wants you to do, then you have a much different view of the things that are presented in the supper. The Bible says that we're to do everything to the glory of God, 
And if you have come to the conclusion that in that environment you can give glory to God, you're seriously confused. And there are some of you that would take your family to movies where they can fill up their mind on the filth of the world. And what you try to do is you try to walk this fine line between Christ and the world. And I'll tell you what will happen to you when you do that. You're going to fall over to the wrong side of that line. More often than not, you fall over to the wrong side of that line. And when you do, when you do, you reproach the spirit of this supper. And thus you reproach the remembrance of Christ. Now, it's hard. I'm going to tell you it's impossible. It is impossible for you to sit here and to feast on this symbol if you haven't tasted of the reality. If your daily life is not a feast personally on Christ, then certainly the symbol that you have, we have here, means nothing to you. And then I might add this, that the Scripture also says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It says that stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And so I wonder, how how can there be members of the church that would resist God's commands, that would resist leadership in the church, that would resist what's known to be right and what the church teaches? How do you resist the commands and be in the spirit of this supper? Idolatry, it says that that stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And so you, you, can't, you can't live that way. You can't say, well, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. I don't care what the church says. I don't care what God says. I don't care what the leadership of the church says. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And you have to live with that. Then you have totally reproached the meaning of this supper. Now, sixthly, the supper pictures the declaration of Christ. Verse number 26 says, For as often as ye eat this bread... And drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. You show it, or you declare the death of Christ. Now, here is an interesting thing, I think, that we don't have any ordinance in the church that's specific to that first point that I gave you. No ordinance of the church is specific to the incarnation of Christ. We don't have an ordinance in the church that is specific to this great event that happened in the life of Christ, and that was his transfiguration. We don't have an ordinance that tells us to celebrate the transfiguration of Christ. We don't have an ordinance in the church that says anything about Christ's ascension. And so we're not told to periodically gather together and have a remembrance of the ascension of Jesus Christ. We're not told to do that. But we are told to do this. There is a remembrance for the crucifixion of Christ. That's what the supper is. It's a memorial that Christ died, that he was crucified. And so we do have this ordinance. Now, the Bible speaks of all those other important facts, but the crucifixion is the one that's set vividly before our minds in the solemn assembly when the church gathers together to receive the supper. The cross of Christ is on our mind. The death is on our mind. Well, why, why is there such prominence placed on the death of Christ? Paul said that, he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Paul preached the cross. He said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And what is in the gospel? Well, the thing that's in the gospel that makes people hate it so much is this one thing, the cross. The gospel is offensive 
because of the cross of Christ. And that was the difficulty that the apostles were always trying to overcome when they gave people the, the gospel because when they had to talk of the cross, that picture of God dying on a cross was completely foreign to their mind. The cross was an offensive thing. That is a place for criminals. And so that, that just didn't compute. It didn't relate. And so they were very offended by the cross, and yet the Bible continually tells us we are to preach the cross. Peter and John preached the cross. Well, why is there so much emphasis on it? Well, there's emphasis on the cross because the cross is what bears out the whole system of salvation. In that respect, the cross is the apex of Scripture. The cross is the thing that we're always getting to in the Scriptures with all those sacrifices. We must preach the cross. Now, there are examples of that in the Old Testament, the brazen altar where the sacrifices were brought. That was a picture of the cross. The most sacred article of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, was a picture of the cross. That mercy seat that was on top of the Ark was the place where God was satisfied for sins and where sin was taken away, and that represented the cross because the cross is where the justice of God was satisfied. It's the cross that provides the basis for the forgiveness of sin. And so without the cross, divine justice couldn't be, couldn't be satisfied. Salvation can't be won without the cross. And that's why God says, remember the cross. This is why Christ says, here is a remembrance for you. Take this supper. Remember me. Remember my death until I come. So he showed his death in the supper, and we show his death to all generations in this supper. So we wonder, how, how is it that Christians can neglect this? How can there be members of the church that purposely absent themselves from it? Without the cross, we're hopeless. We die in our sins without the cross. Now, thank God that he was not content for that to happen because when Adam sinned, there was a provision that was already in place. Remember I told you there was something that happened in eternity before Adam was ever created, God the Father and God the Son had covenanted together that this would take place. The cross was planned. And so God says, preach the cross. Now, finally, this memorial of the supper also shows us a picture of the expectation of Christ. Ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, you notice something? There's a stopping place for the observance of the supper. For 2,000 years of church history, we've practiced this. Our forefathers never let go of this. They passed the heirloom down. They kept passing the heirloom down. But as beautiful it is as it is, as solemn as it is, as holy as it is, there's going to come a time when we'll, we will just gladly let the heirloom go. There's a stopping place for this, and that's when Christ comes again. That's the expectation of Christ. Now, we don't have a need to memorialize Christ when he's here again. We don't need to remember his death in this particular way when he's here with us. And so we're no longer going to need to be reminded of Christ's death in this way. We're only reminded of it now because Christ is absent, but that faith that we have in him is going to end in sight. He's going to return in power and glory. And when he returns, then we don't have a need for the supper. And again, I say we don't remember his death any longer or won't remember it any longer in this way. There's no purpose for it. 
Now, in one sense, what we do is we sorrow over Christ's death. We sorrow because one that was so lovely and so innocent had to die. You know, sometimes I watch your faces as we take the supper, and often I'll see tears in your eyes, and maybe not so much bitter tears, but they're sorrowful tears because Christ had to come in the way that he did. He had to die in the way that he did in order to bring us to God. And he never should have had to die that way. And he wouldn't, except that our sins brought him to that place. Now, I think you recognize that, and I think maybe you think on those things, and tears start to come to your eyes. But I can promise you this, that it's Christ's intent to dry all of those tears. There's coming a time when Christ returns, and he's going to take us to a place where there are no more tears, the Bible says. There is no more sorrow and no crying. Christ is going to be present with us. And remember that the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus, and they asked him, why don't your disciples fast? What's the reason? You know, John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were all used to fasting. They did it all the time. And they noticed that Jesus didn't say a whole lot about fasting in that way. His disciples didn't fast, so they asked him about it. Here's his reply. Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn? And by the way, fasting is about mourning. Maybe you didn't know that. People want to proclaim a fast. Fasting is about mourning. Can the children of the bride chamber mourn? as long as the bridegroom is with them. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. So Jesus said, what's the purpose of them fasting and mourning while I'm here? One of these days I'm going to be gone, and then they can fast and they can mourn. Well, there's coming a time when there's not going to be reason any longer to mourn. The tears of remembrance are all dried up, and the supper is going to be taken away. Now, if you have your Bible there, just turn very quickly, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament, if you have trouble finding it, two or three books or so from the back of the Old Testament. And I want you to listen to what, or read here what Zephaniah wrote concerning uh, words that the Holy Spirit gave for oppressed and sorrowing Israelites. In Zephaniah 3, verse number 16... It says, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love, he will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you. For I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth. When I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. Now there is blessed hope that's promised for the coming of Christ. And this is what he says to us. He says, do this. He says, do it until I come. And when I come, I'm going to rejoice over you with singing. Now, I hope that when you came to the supper tonight that you had thoughts of this. You have the thought of the return of Christ on your mind. When he comes, we'll gladly give this heirloom away. Now, we're, we're happy 
I think all of us are happy that we can come to an assembly like this tonight and we have the joy of remembering Christ and what he's done for us. I think that we ought to count that as a privilege. I certainly do. It's a privilege to come together as God's church and to celebrate the death of Christ as members of his church that he gave his life for us. That's a great privilege for us. But when he comes, we'll gladly give all of this away. We'll gladly give the heirloom away. I mean, it's far better to see him and to remember him no more in the Lord's Supper. And so I hope you think about that. Think about Christ returning for us. So those are some brief thoughts on the Supper. Incarnation, devotion, passion, substitution, invitation, declaration, expectation, And as I've said, you might want to take some time to develop those thoughts on your own. Uh, Get them into your own thinking and rejoice in what Christ has done for us. Remember the cross and also look for Christ. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707 584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church 6298 Country Club Drive Ronert Park, California 94928 Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org